Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where our handle is Pod. I'm thrilled to announce that Sacred and Profane Love is now a member of Lyceum. Lyceum is a new app that hand curates educational podcasts so that you can listen to and have great conversations about them without having to do the hard work of finding them yourselves. In my family, we are huge fans of Lyceum, which even has a lot of great educational podcasts for kids, which is especially helpful during this time of universal homeschooling. So if you are a faithful listener, please download the app and then check out the Sacred and Profane Love Discussion Room, where you can chat with me and other listeners about the podcast. I've also signed up for Lyceum Premium. If you become a premium subscriber, then you not only express your gratitude for all the hard work that goes into the creation of this podcast, but you'll also get access to premium content, which I will exclusively upload to the Lyceum app. Of course, you don't have to listen to the podcast through Lyceum. We are still available through iTunes or SoundCloud or the Virtue Blog or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In episode 23, I speak with Professor Zena Hitz of St. John's College about her new book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. Tonight, I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Zena Hitz of St. John's College in Annapolis. Zena got her BA at St. John's, and then she got an MPhil in Classics at Cambridge and a PhD in Philosophy at Princeton. Uh, she's been an Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Auburn and also the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and now she is back at St. John's. Welcome back to the podcast, Zena. Oh, it's great to be back, Jen. It's so last conversation, so I'm excited to be having another one. So in case you didn't know, Zena was on the podcast for what I think is my favorite episode, and that is episode six on Elena Ferrante. So if you haven't listened to that, you definitely should. So we're here to talk about your book. You have written a wonderful book. It's called Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of the Intellectual Life. It is hot off the presses at Princeton University Press. I mean, I just want to say for the record, I love this book. This book, like reading it just brought me joy. Everyone should order this book. Do it now. But it seems, you know, <laughs> it does seem actually especially <laughs> relevant right now because this is a book about finding a space of retreat away from the busy, distracted world, basically a, a space of reflection and contemplation and the unique pleasures and joys and rewards of this sort of activity. Um, so I want to I want to talk about that. The book begins in kind of an autobiographical mode. Okay. So I kind of and, and of course, you teach now at St. John's and you also studied at St. John's as an undergrad. And I, I'm just, I wondered if you could share with us sort of like how you got to St. John's, you know, as a teenager mm. and why it is that you came back on a very circuitous path. 
Okay, well, I, there's actually, uh, you know, um, there's a couple of good stories that are not in the book. So, so I, um, I was a high school student uh, of a kind that's maybe less common than it used to be, um, but I was very lazy uh, and depressed, and but also very intelligent, and I had a high opinion of myself. So it, it put me in a tough situation in high school because I I didn't do any work. Um, I looked down on every everyone and everything. You mean like you were a flunk, like you were failing? I wasn't failing, but I wasn't doing well. Uh, I certainly wasn't doing well enough to um, get into Princeton. No, to get into uh, any kind of uh, highly rigorous academic school of the kind that I thought I ought to be able to go to, the mm -hmm. sort of thing I thought was fitting for myself. Um, so my college counselor, who grasped this instantly, you know, before I did, uh, suggested the University of Chicago, which at that time accepted people of, of the type that I was. <laughs> They're much more selective now. Um, and St. John's. Uh, and I didn't like my college counselor. And so I thought that was a stupid idea on both counts. Uh, I was totally alienated. I got one of these famous mailings, which so many of our alumni say brought them to the college. We used to have a PR campaign that said, you know, the following teachers will return to St. John's next year. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Newton, etc. Mm -hmm. I thought that was dumb. So I I was totally uninterested. And then I got in as a, uh, so I was a um, junior in high school and I got uh, invited to uh, an academic summer program uh, run by something called Telluride Association, which still runs summer programs on college campuses in different parts of the country. And they had a selection of um, courses you could take in the summer at different places. And uh, there was one at St. John's. It was the first year that they ever offered it. Um, they offered it for about, they had it for about five years there. And the description was just astonishing. It was like nothing I'd never read. You know, it was, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to look at literature and science and ask questions that seem unanswerable and answer questions that seem unaskable. And uh, it was all over the place. And the reading list was all over the place. So I, I signed up for that one. I turned up in Annapolis in June after my junior year, and we we started off reading. Um, they started off as high school students with the fragments of Parmenides, which is hardly. And then we moved on to the Timaeus and to Aristotle's Physics. So the Timaeus, that, exactly. Just that's pretty no, wild. You know, this is part of what I think is the splendor of St. John's. There was no sense of somehow these books were too hard. Nothing is too hard. Yeah. Uh, not, you don't do anything to. Um, treat the student like they're anything less than a full adult capable of swimming on their own, even though, of course, they can't, but it's it's better to treat them that way. So anyway, the instant I was in one of those classrooms reading this kind of stuff, I was like, this is the life for me. I love this mm -hmm. place. Uh, I, yeah. I, I never want to be anywhere else ever. Uh, so it, it's, it was very much a, a, a sort of uh, falling in love type moment. Um, and I I actually, it was a few weeks later, and I couldn't sleep. I was lying in my bed in the dorm at, at St. John's. And I thought to myself, I don't want to go back to high school. I want to, I want to come to St. John. I want to stay at St. John's. You know, I, this is, this is what I want to do. I don't want to go back. I wonder if there's any way that they would admit me now, you know, for the fall. Uh, so I went over to the Dean's office the next day, who was Eva Brand, who's one of our 
better known uh, teachers. Uh, and she said, oh, are you serious? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm serious. So she sent me over to admissions. I filled an application. Uh, I applied in July. I was admitted a week later. A oh my goodness. Financial aid package emerged out of nowhere. And I called my parents. I, mean, I told them I was applying. And I think they were like, oh yeah, sure. Okay. And then I said, well, look, okay, it all came through. I have everything I need and I'm going. And then they sort of started to flip. <laughs> they, just, they weren't really quite ready, I don't think, to have their daughter leave their nest. Um, but anyway, that was it. I, I was 17 years old. I didn't graduate from high school. That's amazing. I'm I, so I jealous. Straight to St. John's. And, you know, I, it was in mixed in some ways. I mean, I was too immature, uh, really, to be in college. Uh and I, my work habits were still very poor. They were poor for quite some time. Yeah, but let me tell you, staying another year in high school would not would not have improved that situation. I don't know. Anyway, uh, but so that was that, uh, and um, that's amazing. I, and it was also, you know, really was. I think it comes out in the book a bit more. It was a transformative experience for me. Uh, it changed the way I looked at things. I met people of of a kind I'd never met before. Um, and I, and I was really, especially by the kind of care that my teachers showed me, um, I was really treated like an, an adult, like a serious person. Um, and I started to believe that I was an adult and a serious person because they treated me that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I also just fell in love with, you know, reading books and talking about things, um, and I developed something which I think is still with me, and, I, and I'm happy to say I think it is reflected a bit in the book that um, I'm very much in the among philosophy, philosophy people, philosophers, um, which is my background, even though I'm doing all kinds of things now. You know, I'm definitely I like the search. I'm not, I, I get irritated when I get an answer. Right. <laughs> so I always like to be in that space where I'm uncomfortable and uncertain, and where I don't quite know what I'm looking for. And that's definitely something that St. John's breeds in its students. Um, and so I really learned my taste for it there, I think. And it's, it's, it's stayed with me ever since. Um, and I, I still like to, yeah, to be in these positions of uncertainty. And, and I always prefer the questions to, um, to systems or to theories or to complete arguments those kinds of things have never been particularly attractive to me. I'm very skeptical. I always think there's something wrong and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's more fun anyway to um, try to take things apart or, or just throw yourself into something which, where you're not quite oriented. What in particular that you were reading do you think really created the spark? I actually went to a pretty good high school. So, and there was, there were some philosophical moments for me in high school. One of them was, I remember my U.S. history class, the teacher um, gave us these readings from a pro-slavery author from the Civil War era, um, and it was very cogent and coherent. And Oh, and wait, who was it? Was it the Creed of the Old South? No, George Fitzhugh. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, it was very cogent, coherent. It was a good argument, uh, and the the moral results were absolutely appalling, and I had no illusions about that. So I think that was a moment where I realized, you know, oh, you know, I could be living under a complete set of illusions. Uh, there's right. no reason to think. And I would, it would sound good to me, you know, and I would be able to use my intelligence to justify something that was, in fact, unjustifiable. I think that was really how I got into philosophy. 
the literature ends up unfortunately sometimes being over philosophized. Um, mm. And uh, so it, it was the spirit of the place um, that was philosophical more than any particular work of philosophy, even though, of course, I liked philosophy. So you go to St. John's a year mm -hmm. early and you graduate and mm -hmm. then you go to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. To study classics. Yeah. And what, what were you wanting out of that? Well, I didn't quite know what I was doing. I, I had the common experience of a lot of St. John's grads in not really quite knowing how to function in a professionalized academic world. Mm -hmm. uh, only I was very lucky because by sheer chance, sheer chance, I ended up in this, you know, super elite, high-profile classics program for a year, um, and I and it was chance because their admission standards, I think, are, you know, in, the, in American grad programs, the admissions is very difficult, but it comes with funding. In England, mm -hmm. the admissions is not so difficult, but the funding is impossible to get. So I got in without funding, and then my aunt swept it at the last minute and paid for it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was two pieces of crazy luck, mm -hmm. um, not to speak of the luck of having even heard of the program to begin with, which wasn't something I would have normally known about. Um, anyway, so here I was, fresh out of St. John's, fresh-faced and uh, in this very competitive, um, very, uh, I don't know how to put it. Yeah, it, it was a strange environment uh, to be put in from St. John's. Very, very status-focused. Um, oh, well, yeah, it's academia. I mean, you know, it was, uh, anyway, uh, I met amazing, wonderful people and I got um, a kind of training that uh, very quickly that I think would have been hard to get any other way. Um, but I also saw, I think, some of the, some of the, some of the darkest things that I've seen in academia, you know, even since then. Uh, right. There can be kind of in, in British academia, um, there's a kind of love of cruelty uh, that can that, that I have not seen anywhere else. And I was in the Princeton Philosophy Department, which is supposed to be a super aggressive, cruel place. And I never found it that way. Yeah. But um, it was the first time I was ever in a talk where I felt like the the, pur the purpose of the conversation was to humiliate the speaker. Uh, oh, really? See, I feel uh, like just pure blood sport. And of course, the British are so good at it because they're so mm -hmm. they're, a witty cutting, like the remark that just t treads the person. Uh, and yeah, so I was, I, I was shocked by that. And the students were not protected from that kind of treatment. Uh, so it was uh, a very frightening kind of environment to be in where the chances of you making a slip and ending up on the wrong end of the humiliation machine <laughs> felt very high. Uh, so anyway, it was a, it was a strange experience. Uh, very good in certain ways, difficult in other ways. But it did, I think the thing it did do was uh, it solidified my commitment, actually, to being an academic one way or the other. Because I, I loved, uh, especially to ancient philosophy, which is what I had ended up doing. Because I loved, to, you know, we would have these evening reading groups. This is something classical philosophy people do. They have evening reading groups. Every place I've ever been as a student or a scholar of classical philosophy, there's a reading group. So we would sit around the table at night, you know, puzzling through something. And that for me was the epitome of, you know, what it meant to be a, a thinker in a community. So, so I loved that. Um, so then you go to Princeton, which if yeah. our listeners don't know, Princeton is a very fancy, prestigious, 
I feel like philosophy departments take on like the character of <laughs> their so so like I went to Pitt philosophy, right. right? And we really were like it was like blue collar philosophy, <laughs> you know, like 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 you go in a seminar at Pitt and everybody's swearing and and yeah. every and like you know the professors are wearing flannel and it's, it's <laughs> everyone smokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Princeton philosophy, especially when I was there, it was definitely a, a special culture and unique in certain ways. I I wouldn't have said it was upper class, um, really aristocratic. No, no. I mean, it was in the academic sense of being elite. We know we're the best, etc. I mean, it was it was luxurious, um, my point of view, then and now. Um, there was more than enough money for anything you could ever want. And people had nice houses and we ate well and, and things like that. And we traveled a lot. So there was it was definitely I'm not denying that it was a highly, highly um, wealthy, fashionable word is privileged uh, environment. Mm -hmm. So if, if I understand your biography, at least the way that you tell it in the book, you know, you have this like passionate love for learning when mm -hmm. you're an undergrad, mm -hmm. and then you get swept up into these elite academic institutions, <laughs> and you become trained to focus on rank and status and prestige. Yeah. And um, so... So maybe we could talk about that and how eventually, I mean, I'm not sure at what point, but eventually you came to see this as an impediment um, to what sort of got you there in the first place. So I, I, I of course, that that's really is the, the important part of the story as far as the book is concerned. And I, I was getting distracted. Uh, but I think that for me, that's uh, the way I tell it in the book, which is correct. That transformation of my intellectual way of being into something essentially competitive and, and status-driven, um, that began my first year in graduate school, if almost instantaneously upon arriving in grad school. And it was partly um, the, the, it was the competitiveness of the environment and the sense of vulnerability um, to humiliation and failure, which I, I, I felt that I all, at all costs um, had to protect myself from. Uh, so, you know, I learned all of these habits that academics learn where you put people down who you think are dumb and you form your judgments on who's good and who's bad based on mm -hmm. what the talk in the coffee room is. And, uh, you know, there's this whole uh, special kind of uh, elite academic groupthink uh, that just kind of sinks into your soul, especially when you're young. And especially when you're when you're frightened and, and and you want to succeed at this thing that you care about, uh, so that um, that sort of t took hold of me instantaneously and completely in a certain way mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning of graduate school. It, it stuck with me, um, and I think what happened at Princeton was a little more subtle than you might think. So. Um, because I was very happy there. I had a lot of really wonderful friends and life was good in a very um, uh, obvious way. You know, mm -hmm. it was a place, uh, I had a nice community, I had friends, we had beautiful parties, um, I could travel, I could go to New York City on the weekends. Um, I, was I was successful at that point in graduate school. I had 
figured out how to um, uh, how to conduct myself with professors and how to write uh, articles that people thought were interesting and people liked my work, people respected me. Uh, I was learning a lot. Uh, so, and I had real, but my friendships uh, were real and they're still some of my, my closest friendships. So I think part of what, it, so I, in a way I really had everything. I had um, the, uh, the luxury, the wealth, the success, um, friendship, you know, beautiful environment, things to do, uh, stimulation, learning. Amazing prospects, because we all know that kids out of Princeton, they yeah. get jobs. And what happened was, as I relate in the book, uh, something which I think affected a lot of people in a very similar way, which was that the World Trade Center was bombed. Um, right. And it had an um, immediate, uh, total... Uh, shocking effect, uh, it, and it, and I think it made me feel that my uh, ha my happiness, which was m more secure than it had ever been, was somehow really severely limited because I knew relatively quickly. I mean, I understood that the suffering of the people who died and their families and the towers and and then the suffering of the people in Afghanistan when we invaded Afghanistan. And I, I somehow had a glimpse into the fact that this suffering was really very general and that I had just been hiding from it my whole life. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I felt this incredible urge, again, I think very common among academics, especially humanist academics, to do something that responded to that kind of suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, to, I was no longer, I was instantly no longer interested in, um, you know, writing on self-knowledge in the Carmody's, which is one of the things I was working on at the time. Right. Uh, now I think, you know, that was a great project and why didn't I spend more time on it? But at that time, I, it just seemed like the stupidest thing in the world. And I needed to be doing something that was connected to real people's lives. Mm -hmm. I saw, so I think in that moment of the World Trade Center bombing um, and, uh, and and the shock and all of the sorrow and the fear and the sense of uncertainty, um, which is incidentally looking backwards, not as bad as it is now, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> but still, right. um, you know, on the one hand, I think I was right. Uh, that is, there was something really that was off about the way that I was living my academic life and on the path that I was at that point more or less firmly set on, which was, you know, academic stardom. Um, and what was wrong with it was that it was a way of um, living for myself and, uh, you know, getting a bunch of stuff, getting the best of everything for myself as I had then, you know, opera tickets and trips to Europe and wonderful. So you had like a pang of conscience. Brilliant people. So I, it was a real pang of conscience. And I thought, but you know, I don't want to live like this. I want to be connected to people who are suffering um, and not just run and not just running from it and, and building a sort of um, cozy nest of wonderful things and pretending that's all there is. So that was really right. I had an insight that was very profound and very transformative at that point. 
I think I also made a mistake. It was a useful mistake because it helped me to understand from the inside what I think so, so many academics go through. Um, the crisis I went through of thinking this is useless, I've got to help people. That's something virtually everyone I talk to has had this experience. They want, they get tired of doing work that is narrowly academic. They want to be, feel like a part of a human community. They want to be connected to um, the poor and the suffering in their community. They want more of the richness of, of human life and a sense that what they're doing um, is, you know, pushing back the darkness a little bit or something like that. And so I, I think that one of the, 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 the very slow revelation that took about 10 or 15 years really for me to untangle was that that was a kind of mistake because there's a way of doing intellectual work, doing academic work, teaching, studying, and learning, which really is pushing back the darkness, um, which really is a form of loving service. It's not in principle different from working in a homeless shelter or um, uh, certainly not, well, I mean, maybe different, different in the sense of maybe being somewhat better than working in a certain kind of large bureaucratic human rights organization, um, which is what, where many people of the kind I was might've ended up after mm -hmm. that. Um, so that was, that's in a way the meat of the book is getting, um, and, and of my original work on these topics was how to get from this very natural thought that uh, academic work is pointless. It doesn't help anybody. It's self-indulgent. Um, it's a way of um, scrabbling for status, which is, you know, uh, that that we might not have been able to get elsewhere. You know, so academics are often people who have, you know, failed in athletics or or in love or in making a lot of money, and so this is this is where they get their status. So how I got from from that point of view of thinking of intellectual life as being useless and self indulgent to thinking that it was really actually um, properly understood, properly undertaken, really uh, a form of loving service as important as any other. Uh, and so uh, crucially important for, for our communities and absolutely worth doing, um, not necessarily uh, more than any other helpful human activity, but among all of those useful things, it's essential. Right. Uh, so, so I want to... That was what I wanted to try to convey. I know you have questions about that. So. Yeah. So I kind of want to get into, I guess, what would be the foundational concepts of your book. So like, what is intellectual life? How do we think about it? How do we think about its value and its contribution? <clears throat> like, why is it important? What What are the unique pleasures of that sort of life? Pleasures in the title was not my idea. But anyway, plot and plot, but I could not win. I, the marketing department won. So oh, I see. I see. Well, but you do still talk about this, the sort of joys, you know, mm -hmm. of the intellectual life. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of want to get into this by talking about Joseph Pieper 
Right. So Joseph Pieper wrote this book, which I'm sure you have read, called Leisure is the Basis of Culture. Yeah. So Pieper doesn't want to use the language of work. You know, he's, he's very averse to talking about intellectual work or the intellectual worker. And he sort of has this critique of Kant and, and Marx as this, like, you know, they want to make everything into work and they want to say the value of intellectual work is that it's like hard, you know, it's a kind of labor, right? And, you know, he wants to say, no, 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 it's not work. It's actually like kind of useless. And that's, and actually the best things in life are, are totally useless in some sense. And he thinks this is like fundamental to the conception of the liberal arts as opposed to the servile arts, um, you know, the university as being the special um, provenance of the liberal arts in particular. So we don't want universities to become trade schools. He like presents it as a as a contrast. And I wonder to what extent you agree with Pieper's point of view and disagree. I mean, obviously you're big on leisure right. and you think that intellectual activity, let's just call it activity, um, is valuable in its own sake, not for the sake of something else. So I think the simplest thing to say in response to that question is that um I tried in the book to be as simple as I could, um, which I think for philosophers often comes off as and may actually be a certain kind of sloppiness. So I'm not particularly interested in making fine distinctions between the use of the word work and the use of... So I'm not interested in having a fixed terminology. Um, I agree with Pieper 100%. I'm very much in Pieper's line um, in terms of thinking of um, the work of the, the quote unquote work of the mind as be, the activity of the mind as being fundamentally leisurely and not useful. Um, that I do agree with. Um, and I try to defend that in my own way. Um, but I also sometimes use the term intellectual work because, you know, what do I do? You know, when I'm teaching my classes, is that labor in the Marxian sense? Well, no. But is it work? Yes, it's work. Uh, is it loving service? Yes, I hope so at its best. Um, and so since a lot of the people I'm writing for are people who do some kind of actual work that's intellectual work, they're, they're critics, they're journalists, they're academics, they're teachers, um, they design curricula for their diocese or for their school districts. Mm -hmm. uh, th these are people that are, that are um, doing the work of the mind in a way that's connected with the community in some way. And um, th that seems to me a, a perfectly uh, legitimate form of, of intellectual life as I understand it. Now, I talk in the book extensively, and I have a special, it's a point dear to my heart that you don't need to have a, a job or a profession dedicated to the, you know, a specifically dedicated to the intellect to live an intellectual life. So one of my favorite examples, partly because the book is not as well known as it should be, um, but it's John Baker, who is this uh, office worker in Essex in the, in the 40s and 50s, uh, into the 60s. Uh, he worked for the Automobile Association, which is the British equivalent of AAA. Um, it was right. pretty boring work, you know, office mm -hmm. work. Um, but that wasn't really what he did. What he really did was look at peregrine falcons and ride around on bicycles in all of his spare hours 
um, looking at them with eyeglasses, taking notebooks, mapping them, counting them, uh, cataloging them, and reflecting on what they meant and what it meant for him to be out there looking at them um, and ended up writing this wonderful book um, called The Peregrine, which is some, one of the books I hope that everyone reads after they read my book. Uh, so um, someone like that, even if they never write a book, um, is living an intellectual life. They're, they're living a life of contemplation. And I think that there's tons of people who live like that, uh, but they don't acknowledge to themselves or, or value in themselves this thing that they're doing, which is so essential. Um, so in a way, I, what I'm trying to do, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to, is to bring together these two uh, groups of people on the one hand, you know, your your ordinary person who might have a menial job or a very, very boring job or maybe just an ordinary job, but their real life is going on somewhere else. They're an amateur botanist. Um, they collect bugs. Um, they read speeches of Lincoln, uh, what, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. th there's tons of people like this, mm -hmm. <laughs> bird watchers. Yeah. Uh, or, um, so, th and that people like that on the other hand, and on the other hand, people like you and me who work in universities, you know, who have PhDs, who are quote unquote professionals, but who I think people like you and I get really, uh, discouraged and worn down, uh, to the point where many of us, I, I've known many people who've left the profession for reasons like this. They just no longer feel like what they're doing uh, matters. Uh, whereas if we were able as professionals to connect with what these ordinary people did, um, we would be happier people. Um, and that, that connection can happen in a number of ways. It can happen, between, happen in the way that we connect ourselves with what our initial intellectual interest was. What was the thing which drew us into this whole business, the whole kettle of fish? Um, it wasn't you know, handing out B pluses, you know, and it wasn't um, building critical thinking skills in the people of tomorrow so that they can um, build uh, the economy of the future. No, absolutely not why we did it. I mean, that's a good thing to do. Sure. I, I guess. I mean, depending on what, how you build the economy of the future, it's a good thing. Um, but it's not, uh, it, it, it's just not w why we're in it. So we, people like us need to reconnect with, with what we're doing and people who are more ordinary need to really take courage and, and realize that what they're doing is as fully intellectual life or contemplation as what anyone else is doing. It's like all of these essential things, like the things that are most essential to human life, they're not attached to high status and they're not rewarded, right? So like parenting, not a high status gig. We're so habituated to thinking of value as use value, right? You know, we want to put a price on everything. We want to, we want to give an account. And of course, I think you talk about it a little bit in your book, but that's the way intellectual life and in the sense of academic work has become, right? You don't get any credit from the outside world. And as we all know, if, if you know, in the social context, you tell someone, oh, you know, I stay home with the kids and it's like, you know, no one thinks that's uh, an exciting, uh, yeah. dramatic, beautiful, wonderful, uh, fascinating thing to be doing. 
So I think that's in a way at the root of a lot of difficulties that I talk about in the book. And I think there's two different kinds of difficulty, actually, because there's on the one hand, there's the um, this, the metrics driven bureaucracy that I think many, many professions now, maybe all of them have to deal with. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember it like if, if you if you watched The Wire as I did, you know. Oh, it's the best TV show. It, it was, I, I was completely obsessed with them. But uh, the police have to have these metrics, right? They've mm -hmm. got to, like, you know, juke the numbers um, in order to get their money and their funding and to, to keep things going. Mm -hmm. And those, those metrics get disconnected from the real goals of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that happens to teachers, it happens to academics, it happens to everybody. It's in a certain way, I think one of the, you know, I don't even know how to think of it as a political problem. It's very serious. It really affects everyone's life. It's a major deterioration um, of our communities. Um, but no it, joy it, and metrics. I think it's, it's general to, um, to a lot or maybe all the professions in the, in the US and in Europe right now. But the other difficulty is this status thing, which I think is independent. Um, and that I think works on the topics we're thinking about um, in the following way, that is um, teaching, uh, which is uh, probably the fundamental loving service of um, an academic life. It's passing on to the next generation the habits of mind that you received yourself. Um, and whatever is good about literature, philosophy, or mathematics, or whatever it is that you're teaching, history, you want to you want to preserve that for the next generation. You want to pass it on to them. Mm -hmm. And in the process, actually, you, you learn a lot, as we all know. Um, but that is is an extremely low status end in academia. So, oh yeah, nobody uh, cares. University I know of, apart from mine, which is very very niche and very weird. Um, the, the the higher you are on the totem pole, the less teaching you do, um, and the teaching that you do is less demanding. That's right. Um, and so everything becomes about research. Mm-hmm. And research too, and, and then research is not just about metrics. It can be, depending on your kind of institution. Sort of, I think like a, you know, a second tier institution. It's going to be about the metrics. A top tier institution is going to be like your reputation. You know, are you yeah. one of the? You know, what was the thing they used to ask people at Harvard when they went up for tenure? Right? Uh, maybe they still do, but you know, is this person, you know. Who do you think is the top three people in this person's field? If you're not number one, you're no tenure for you. you know? mm -hmm. So you know, who are the best people of their generation in X, Y, or Z field? Mm -hmm. right. um, and uh, that can, I don't, I don't think research is bad. It, when it, it's, I think it's important. Um, and I think it's important, especially for academics to have time to reflect and to work out their ideas for themselves and not to have everything be teaching. Your teaching has to come from uh, an intellectual life that's independent and that's real and that you care about and you're really thinking these things through. You have your own projects and that's part of what you're communicating to your students if it's done. Um, but I think that the the research, the way that it's valued in, in these 
and top research institutions has gone well beyond that. Um, and it, it's no longer really connected to any kind of service in a lot of cases, unless that happens to be the kind of person that you like to be, you know? Mm. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's not necessarily uh, deeply rewarding contemplation either. Uh, it can be again, depending on how free, how free a person you are and, you know, how much you, you, you determine your own projects. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, if you, I mean, you know, you know how the game works. Like if you're a young analytic philosopher looking to get tenure, then you're going to be writing on the stuff that's going to get you published in the top journals. And you're going to be hanging out with the right kind of people who are going to be able to write you letters. I found that incredibly limiting. Yeah. At first, that's how I was thinking. I'm like, okay, I've got to play this game. And I was just absolutely miserable because I didn't actually care. I didn't think these were the right questions to be asking. I didn't actually care. And, um, and then I got lucky in that a kind, you know, a, a kind of revered elder in our field. We did this huge project together um, on virtue, happiness, and meaning of life, which are are not the questions to be asking if <laughs> you want to get in the shiny places, right? So here I was talking to economists and theologians and literary critics, just like all kinds of people and just asking these like vast kinds of questions that like Socrates would ask, you know, right. you know, I'm just like, I can't go back. You're <laughs> still going back for me. My first job was like a super fancy postdoc at a fancy place. But then my first tenure track job is at the University of South Carolina, yeah. um, which is not a super fancy place. Um, but that, but that also was a kind of liberation. And I thought, you know, we can keep running like the prestige race and right. like we could, we could probably do it you know or we could be happy like which is it gonna be so you make this argument in your book a very old-fashioned argument that there is a steep connection between the the kind of freedom of of contemplation and happiness so why don't you give us the elevator pitch so <laughs> I haven't been in an elevator in a long time. What, what What's an elevator again? Yeah. That sounds yeah. really unfinished. <laughs> your, your two-minute Zoom speech. How's that? That seems really relevant, right? Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's funny when you put it that way, when you put it that simply, then I sort of, one of the things that happened to me in this book is that um, it's a miracle that it actually reads it all coherently because every time I actually try to think in a direct way about one of the central questions that I express an opinion about, I get this kind of vertigo and I'm like, I, I don't know. What is, what does contemplation have to do with happiness? And I guess it's the same, uh, but how, I don't know. I don't know how it works. You get someone who has more detailed mind to work that out. Um, so let's put it this way. Um, we're not happy. You could start from the negative, which I think is a way easier to see. And, and it's actually, I think the way a lot of people figure things out. Um, we're not happy um, chasing status, um, not ultimately. We're not happy um, uh, spending our entire lives um, pursuing goals which are not, in the traditional sense, ends in themselves. So if I'm pursuing money, if I, if I go to work to make more money um, and then I spend my money 
on supporting my way of life, which is dedicated to making money. Mm-hmm. My life doesn't make sense. And and I might I might not be able to see that first. I may be able to live like that for a certain period of time without seeing it, but it eats away at me. Um, and we right, because like, you don't have an answer to the question. Like, what's it all? What's it all for? <laughs> you, exactly. So um, people need some core activity in their lives, which everything else is for the sake of. Um, and that could be loving relationships. It's very common, you know, family. It could be spending time down outdoors and nature and bird watching and your botany. It can be thinking about things. It can be studying. But it has to be something which isn't for the sake of the results. Um, otherwise, you end up in these traps where what you're doing, what you've dedicated your life to is is never going to satisfy you because it's not supposed to, it's supposed to be for something else. So it's, it's a, it's a mystery about a human, about human beings, how we can do this. So how, how can we take something which is really a means to an end and treat it and end it itself? Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's interesting just because we were just talking about bureaucracy. It's a similar thing with bureaucracy. Now, good bureaucracy is a means to an end, but we all know it just becomes an end, you know, is checking the boxes, you know, Mm -hmm. you thought it was, Checking the boxes was going to make the work go better, but then the the work starts going to heck, and all you're doing is checking boxes. So I think there's something in us that does that, and and we're not happy unless we find a way to fight it, um, and to carve out for ourselves something valuable uh, and good and true uh, that um, we know is what really matters to us. Um, Don't so- you also think that? contemplation. I mean, so like these other things you mentioned, it's an end in itself, but you think it gets a higher, right? I mean, it's higher than some of these other things. I'm, I'm actually very uh, careful not to say that. I, so I might, I think I do think that if you extend the notion of contemplation out so if, let's talk about that. Yeah. So part of what part of why I resist doing that to begin with is because I, you know, I, I'm an Aristotle scholar. So uh, <laughs> a lot of these thinking it doesn't come from Joseph Pieper directly. We both he gets it from Thomas Aquinas. I get it from Aristotle. The distinction between work and leisure and the idea that happiness is leisure comes from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe there's roots in Plato, but Aristotle is the clearest about it. Um, but he thought that um, contemplation was philosophy of the kind that he did. Um, and he thought only a few people could do it. And that was that. So only a few people could be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my understanding of Aristotle. It, there are people who try to soften it up and reinterpret it so that it's more cuddly. I, I think that's just what he thought. Um, Aristotle is not very cuddly. Well, I mean, I love him, but he's it's not. Certain ways, people, certain ways he is cuddly. But I think in this respect, both he and he and Plato, they're they're cold as ice. Um, there's a best way of life. It's philosophy, and chances are you're not going to make it. You know, yeah. Well, definitely we're not going to make it. <laughs> well, we we can barely think. <laughs> we can barely think. Well, we have some rational capacity. It's just not very anyway. Um, uh, that there's also misogyny, but that, that's a different question. So I now, so I think Peeper also does this, um, and I I think it's a good move. It's a move that I try to adopt to say that contemplation is much more than just 
doing philosophy of the kind Aristotle did. Um, right. There's contemplation in loving relationships. Now, you might think that those that's not oh that's totally different. No, it's not. It really isn't. You're not. you're 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 contemplating. Um, this other human being or these other human beings, if there's more than one of them. Um, and it's, that's part of what makes it profound um, uh, is, is that sense of uh, mystery and wonder. And you're in the presence of something which you don't quite understand, but which unfolds itself to you piece by piece. Right. Um, I mean, I think Aquinas is more cuddly in this respect. Well, I think that's true. Um, because, cuddly, that's and, right. and I, Aquinas is very cuddly. I cuddle up to Aquinas like every night. But um, <laughs> <You're not. laughs> um, I think part of it's just because, you know, he's a, he's a Christian. And right. so he's um, just has a broader commitments to equality and thinking, yes, of course, happiness is has to be equally open to everyone. But he also is inheriting this tradition of, you know, basically illiterate saints. Now, right. saints, if any, I mean, the saints are happy, right? <laughs> they have so, so, so they have to be contemplating. Also, right. they're not, they are not philosophically trained. So he's going to have to, for all sorts of reasons, he's going to have to have a more capacious account of that. Um, And I think it is for Aquinas loving vision. I mean, that's how I would describe contemplation. It is actually that's beautiful. I don't think I had heard quite that phrase before, but I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I I would support that loving vision. That's perfect. I'm going to rewrite my book. um, (laughs) Yeah, when it was second edition. (laughs) Loving, in fact, it's a good title too. The second edition. No, I I agree with that, and and it's for similar reasons because I too am a Christian. I too am an egalitarian. Um, and it's not just that I feel bad for people who can't be happy because they don't do philosophy. I don't actually think it's true. I think that there are other kinds of contemplation. Um, so yeah, I, it, so if we broaden it out, I think, yes, happiness is contemplation. If we broaden contemplation out in that way, um, but in the narrow sense, it's not. And that, and that's the more traditional sense of thinking that contemplation is the highest, mm-hmm. right? Is thinking that somehow it's for you know, the gold medal Olympics winners at philosophy. Right. So if we, so if we have the capacious loving vision account Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. contemplation, um, why is it the highest? For me, the negative arguments are clearer. The positive argument in favor of loving vision as happiness and as the highest good I honestly feel like I, I'm reluctant to say this, especially to a philosophy professor. It's it's almost like an empirical claim. Mm. So I think the way that I believe that is not actually through faith and it's not through argument. It's because my experience and the experience of others whom I know and everything I know about human life from reading, from thinking, from talking to people, from all of the range of walks of life of people that you meet and talk to, this is what they love. This is what, this is when they're at peace is when they have a loving vision Mm -hmm. um, of something that really matters to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good. No, I like that. I, 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 and I think truthfully, a lot of my thinking is like that. I think it find, I think philosophers find it frustrating for that reason. I understand why, but I, I, I think you, 
for a lot of these kinds of questions about happiness, at some point you have to get a little bit matter of fact and really reflect on your experience and reflect on, you know, for lack of a better term, the wisdom of the ages um, and see what really resonates and what makes sense. And it, it, it may not be really, there might be things that which can't be really established by argument and aren't really strictly matters of faith. But I think, it, but if you work hard at it and think about it, it becomes clearly true or, right. or so clear enough anyway, clear enough. Um, right. One of the things that I um, really, just really resonated with me in your book, uh, resonates with my experience, I also think that it's true, is that um, the intellectual life in particular is a discipline that it involves a lot of sacrifice and self-denial and a certain kind of asceticism. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. So uh, that I think is is important um, and it, it can be misunderstood. I think asceticism in general is not, um, not well understood, <clears throat> even by Christians who um, proclaim it like us. Um, so, Part of the difficulty, if you think about our previous conversation about academic life, on the one hand, you have um, the drive for status, uh, the drive for achievement, and the and also forms of unfreedom that are connected to really being too tightly bound with a social environment. That is a real fearfulness of doing anything that's going to make you stick out or that's going to risk uh, rejection from a from a social community, um, and that's that's not quite the same thing as love of status. I think in the book I run them together sometimes, but it's not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so we have these um, desires, fears, impulses, and that's what draws us into treating instrumental goods as ends in themselves. That's what draws us to um, <laughs> to uh, uh, um, spend all of our time alone uh, on Twitter or or shopping or something else pointless, rather than really sitting down and thinking about something or doing something worthwhile or taking care of something that's worthy. So there's all these elements in a human being which um, left themselves uh, just. Uh, make it impossible for us to flourish. Um, and we have to, if we want to be happy and if we want to flourish, we have to make a kind of war on them. Um, and that often happens. Um, and I've been thinking about this in connection to this quarantine situation where, um, you know, I know intellectually the difference between me and, you know, Malcolm X, who read the whole prison library <laughs> when he was in quarantine. I mean, there are many differences. But one of the differences is I think he must have surrendered and said, this is my life and I'm going to do whatever I can do with it. Um, mm -hmm. You have to wait for that. And you have to run yourself down as part of waiting. Um, this is something you hear a lot about, actually, from alcoholics or recovering addicts of whatever kind. You run yourself down. And at that point you become capable of forms of discipline that you might not have otherwise. Um, so it's not necessarily calling for asceticism is not necessarily calling for military academy type things. Although I think those are good. Um, 
but I mean, for some people, especially, or, or authoritarianism or anything like that, it's just that to be happy, we need to, we need to structure our lives in ways where the things that are really easy are made more difficult and the things that are really difficult are made more easy. So, for instance, take St. John's. It's a perfect example. Now we read books that are strictly impossible. Right now I'm reading with juniors, Newton's Principia. This book is impossible. It's so difficult. I swear it's the hardest book I've ever read. I've read it. <laughs> see, but I don't, maybe you didn't find it was the hardest book you've ever read. I did. Um, now, how do I get 15 college juniors in quarantine to read this book? Um, well, they have to, there has to be something which makes the difficult more appealing. Mm -hmm. the, route, the, the routes to the difficult have to be made easier. And all the things which are easier, um, namely doing whatever it is that you'd rather do than study your Newton, those have right. to be difficult. So this is a lot of it has to do with the way you structure a community, the way you structure institutions, the way you structure your own life. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of subtle ways which you can build incentives and disincentives so that you do what's what really matters more easily than you do things that are harmful for you. Yeah. Well, the only, sorry, just so that I don't seem super weird. The only reason I've read Newton <laughs> I seem super weird. is because <laughs> is because um, when I was an undergrad, one of my closest friends, well, most of my friends were philosophy grad students. So I right. went to Indiana University. <laughs> we were always having these crazy conversations about N Newton. And anyway, I just thought Newton sounded like kind of wild. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons why I, I like your book so much is that it just, it really resonates with my experience. I mean, so I also hated high school, but probably for different reasons. Like I was like really, really popular, you know, like homecoming queen, like cheerleader, like. Yeah, 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 I could believe it. Mm -hmm. um, nobody looked at me and thought philosopher or right. even frankly, I mean, like I was in all the AP classes. I graduated at the top of my class. I was clearly smart, but people didn't, nobody took me seriously, right? Mm -hmm. No one. I was totally bored. Like I was done. I was done with high school like, by my junior year. You know, that's why I said I'm so jealous that you, you got to leave. And what do you do when you're smart and you're bored? Well, obviously you just do a ton of drugs. <laughs> really the only rational option. Right. That's right. And, um, and, I, and I just kept thinking to myself, well, I'm just, I'm going to be in college soon, right? Um, and somehow that like, to me, it was like, everything was going to be different, but then I got to college and it was just like high school right. all over again. And, and I was like, well, but I hated high school. Like, I don't want to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, but I got really into philosophy. I got taken up into the whole social world of the philosophy grad students for three years and just lived in the library. I mean, I wanted to read everything. And I, the, the, the kind of asceticism I had was nuts. Right. It was totally <laughs> nuts. Like I had like one pair of jeans that I borrowed from a guy. <laughs> that was like my wardrobe. <laughs> like everybody in my high school was like, what the hell happened to Jennifer? Like what happened to her? You know? 
And, and it was a legitimate question because every, everyone was just like, well, Jen, she never comes home. She doesn't come back to the parties. I was just so enthralled yeah. with all of this. And I, and I also had this realization of how badly educated I was, how stupid I was, how ignorant I was. And I was like, man, I just have to catch up, you know? Um, and like the amount of discipline that I had was insane, but it came from a place of love. Like no one, there wasn't a single soul asking me to do this. In fact, <laughs> everyone was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, like you're not sleeping. That's <laughs> I love that story because part of one of the things I try to bring out in the book, it, you know, I talk about how intellectual life um, reveals or restores or recovers a person's dignity. Anyway, I love your story because um, there's two kinds of uh, stories of how people recover their dignity. There's the kind of classic um marginalized person, rejected person who discovers in books, reading, thinking, um, something that is um, uh, worthy and beyond price and that helps them to see that who they are, they are not um, as they are judged by their social environment. But then there's another kind of story um, which in a way is like the story I was just told earlier about Princeton where um, you're kind of, you, you have um, all kinds of success. You're the cheerleader, you're, the home, you know, the homecoming queen, you're popular. And that too is a denial of your dignity. Mm -hmm. Because Jennifer is more than that. You know? <laughs> uh, everyone is more than that. Yeah. Um, and so I, those kinds of stories, I think, are, are also very, um, very touching. Because I think they show that it isn't just to put it crudely, you know, the, recovering your dignity isn't just for losers because right. losers and winners, everyone playing the game has, is being denied their dignity. Right. Well, I think what kind of thing which rests on winning, losing, it's just not that kind of a thing. So, um, so that's why I'm grateful that, the, that there are these two kinds of stories, the stories of finding your dignity um, as a winner and finding your dignity as a loser. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I was winning at the wrong game, you know? <laughs> I mean, and I, and I, and I knew, I mean, like in high school, like I knew I was miserable and yeah, I mean, philosophy just right. literally blew my mind. <laughs> it's just like, this is, this is what I want to do, but it was really terrifying because I didn't see any philosophers that looked like me or were from the kind of like working class background that I was from, you know, like my philosophy professors studied at like Balliol College and Harvard. <laughs> right, and right. I'm just like, I'm just some girl from the Rust Belt. But I realized like, you know, what I really want is to be able to talk to these people to like contribute yeah. to these conversations. Right. And yeah, I mean, there was a rank and status aspect to it to be sure and I don't want to deny that and that was really terrifying for me because I was like I don't see how I'll ever be accepted right because I don't have the habits of someone who's cultured 
you know, right. like I have all the wrong habits and dispositions. This is just a feature of human life, right? Rich people have good things. Mm -hmm. They have things like philosophical educations <laughs> and the leisure to study literature and all other kinds of good things. And so our interest in those good things gets mixed up with our desire to be like rich people. I mean, it gets mixed up with social ambition. It couldn't be any other way. Um, and the, the art of being an adult, it seems to me, is figuring out how to untangle uh, the things which are really good and the way in which they're really good from whatever it was, that motive that, that, um, that might have rocketed you up there that was less than uh, something admirable. I mean, very human, but not necessarily why that thing really matters. Another thing that I really like about your book okay. is that you go into um, figures that you think kind of embody your thesis. Mm -hmm. So you already mentioned one of them, like you talk about Malcolm X, and mm -hmm. um, but you also talk about Dorothy Day. So I wondered if you could just say why you chose Dorothy Day and what sort of really stood out to you. I mean, like, why is Dorothy Day an exemplar of what you're trying to, why is her life an exemplification? You know, a lot of people look at Dorothy Day and what they admire isn't her intellectual life, but her active life. Right. Well, she, she is an active person. And that's part of why I thought she was an interesting case. But I actually want to say something before that about why, because there is actually a reason why I wanted the book to have a lot of figures in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of stories and a lot of individual characters. So I'm going to say something about that. And then we can get back to Dorothy Day. Um, because I, I, I felt that the difficulty that was facing me my, that had faced my, that I had faced and that other academics I knew had faced was um, not somehow a lack of intellectual understanding that intellectual life was a good thing. Um, so part of the, part of the problem that I was reacting to when I started writing about this is this profound lack of confidence among especially humanist academics and these pathetic justifications of what we do in terms of economic outcomes or political outcomes. Right. Um, and that showed to me something that we just somehow just don't believe in it. And that that isn't an intellectual, that isn't, its roots aren't in the intellect. The roots are in the, in something else. And so I wanted to have um, images and stories and pictures and, things that were vehicles of aspiration um, so that, because I felt like that was the level at which the difficulty was, was um, needed to be addressed, that it's a matter of the heart um, more than it's a matter of the mind. And, it, and I thought I could do something like that, whereas I wasn't sure that I would be able to outline a systematic account from first principles of why contemplation is happiness and the highest good and therefore um, what we're doing is great. Um, I don't know whether that, I could have done that, but I also don't think it would have been that helpful. And so I wanted to have these figures who we could get to know and think about and who would be quite different from one another um, so that you get a sense of what the whole thing looks like. So I think, I think that matters to us more than, than academic philosophers pretend it does. What things look like really matters. <laughs> Dorothy Day in particular, she actually was a figure who came into the project late. So 
I was surprised when she sort of appeared on my doorstep and wanted to be in the book. Um, but I think it was, I, I read an essay actually by um, a theologian named Aileen Graham. It was in draft form. I was very grateful to be able to read it, who talked about her as someone who read books. So, and then, so, and then you look at the autobiographies, mm-hmm. long, which is a fabulous, wonderful book. Everyone should read. And also the earlier one from Union Square to Rome. And she talks about books all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading this and I was thinking this. I was reading this and I was thinking this. I was reading this and I was thinking that. And then there's this famous thing that she says in, the, in her in an interview with Robert Coles that um, she she felt like she compares the books that she read to the guests in her houses of hospitality. So Day's, Day was famous for founding these houses of hospitality where anyone could come and anyone could receive um, uh, loving care of one kind or another. Um, but she compares the books to the guests. Um, and she they're fundamental figures in her life. And what she says is that not she doesn't want to under she doesn't want to teach them, she wants to live them. Mm-hmm. So and then once I started to read her that way, it became clear that her life was on the one hand very concrete, very in the world. You know, she's um sharing her bed with um, a drug, a homeless drug addict. You know, she's, <laughs> she's sleeping in the bathtub because every other um, space in the house is full uh, of right. food shelter. She's um, raising money to feed um, all of these people. Um, it's, it's, it's very gritty. It's concrete. It's real. There's um, in a way, I, I think, um, nothing romantic about it in its concreteness and its grittiness and its activity and its connection to other human beings. On the other hand, um, she was, she went, she became that sort of person through books. Um, she converted um, first to communism uh, and then to Catholicism and she converted through books uh, and um, it was books who showed her um, the poor um, in in their hidden places um, in her communities. Um, and so I, I was very interested in that. And I thought it was an interesting case for the kind of um, question I was interested in, which is, well, you know, how does how does reading books help people? Um, and it seemed like a sort of interesting answer to that question is for certain people reading books helps people because it changes them it it it's their engines for personal growth mm-hmm. that, um i mean personal growth is sort of the self-helpy term growth and virtue would be the more right um catholic a more philosophical term the other interesting thing about day is that she, and this connects to something I know you're interested in, so we can talk about it later, the, the, this, this contemplative spirit. Um, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, um, which right. is one of the books that she uh, loved and had a, a, a transformative experience on her. It's not really a particularly good book, I don't think. It's, <laughs> it's, very, um, it's very lurid, actually. Mm. So you have like a... a, a a boy sleeping in the slaughterhouse who's eaten to death by rats. I mean, that, that's lurid um, and and very melodramatic. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's very interesting and it's, um, it had a, it had a real, it had the effect that on many people that it did on day of just pulling up the curtain and, you know, behind your middle-class life, there's this enormous pit of suffering and these people that are treated like absolute garbage. And once you encounter it, it makes a demand on you and you have to live differently, but it's not a good book. So I, um, and I, I think the other, some of the other books that she liked, they were not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, now Dostoevsky, now he's really good. Um, although also a bit melodramatic. I mean, Dostoevsky's not for everybody. Uh, and I, so one of the reasons why she's where she is in the book too, is I think she, she was a serious person. Um, and so the books she read, she took seriously and she made of them something um, which maybe was more than what they were originally intended to do. Mm-hmm. And I want to make that possibility open. I mean, I, so I teach in a great books program. Uh, so I believe that there are books that are an education in and of themselves. I believe some books are better than others. I think there are books which can teach anybody at any level that are full of infinite riches. But I don't think, and I, I'm a big fan of those books. I think that uh, education should be more focused on them in general. But I don't think they're necessary for reading to have that kind of impact on a person. I think I think a, a person who's serious can really chew up almost anything. But, you know, 50, Shades, I, 50 Shades of Grey is really, uh, I mean, something like that's basically pornography or um, that's really just... Um, well, it's running. like all those trashy romance novels with like Fabio on the cover. <laughs> it's running a certain machinery in your passions. Uh, it's pulling you into the surfaces. There's no growth from reading something like that. Right. Now, I mean, you could, I suppose, read it as a, as a study of human nature or something. It would be hard work. Um, it would be a very painful way to study human nature. I'd rather read something better. Um, but you could, but it would be, it would be difficult. Uh, well, what is it to be a serious person? Does it mean that you have a contemplative spirit? Does it mean you have the virtue of studiositas, which you talk about in your book? So the virtue of studiositas, which is what I call the virtue of seriousness is basically what I'm talking about. It is day okay. sort of central virtue. She is just serious. It's the temperance of the mind. Right, uh, more than temperance, it's because it's passionate. This is where Aquinas places it. Uh, Studiositas comes in the treatise on temperance. It's one of the proper parts. Right, right. The way that I want to understand it is not primarily through Aquinas's way, which is as a form of temperance. There probably is a way of saving both of these things, but I came at it through Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Augustine, it's, it's contrasted with curiositas, which is in a way just, um, the vice of distraction, uh, the vice of, uh, lurid fascination, the vice love of, of spectacles. That's what you call love it. of spectacles. Like you just want to see stuff go, you go to the gladiator matches, you watch spiders eat flies, you know, you rubberneck car accidents Get on Twitter. Get on Twitter, like watch the lurid news. Like, oh my God, Trump said what? Total curiositas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so so studiositas is for. He doesn't have it in those terms. I mean, he is studiosis. It's just the anyway. That's really stupid. In Augustine, I think it's it's more clearly 
like you're directed at it's going to end up being a little circular given what we talked about earlier it's being directed at the the highest thing you can see it's it's seeking your own happiness and seeking your own um development and growth um and putting that above other things so it's the opposite of distraction um it's focus it's determination it's um just and that's also in a way why asceticism can be a bit misleading to talk about because it's you're not disciplining yourself because you like suffering and pain. You're disciplining yourself because there's something else you really want. Um, there's something else that drives you. And Augustine, I think, is the best the best example of that um, because that the Confessions is a story of such a driven, passionate person um, who um, and who you know like <laughs> like us, very successful. You know, gets to the top of the heap, and it's it's he wants more, um, and that that's connected with the virtue of seriousness or studiositas. It's it's that passionate drive for what's real, what's more, what's better, um, and it's it's the thing that it's the engine that turns you away from your distractions. Right, and, and I mean, it's kind of like knowing how to pay attention. Right. Yeah. Which isn't just not being distracted, but knowing what's worthy of your attention and and being able to attend to that. You also talk in your book about Augustine in particular on the pleasures of truth, on uh, joy in the truth. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Well, so I have this difficulty, which is I, I remember early on in this project, I was talking to one of my uh, dear colleagues who was also one of my former teachers. And she said, oh, but isn't, isn't intellectual life, is, isn't it just very pleasant? I mean, isn't that why we like it so much? <laughs> and I remember being sort of floored because it wasn't obvious I had an answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and distinguishing the pursuit of pleasure from the pursuit of pleasure in the truth. You know, so I think the way Augustine thinks about it is that it's always pleasure in something. Um, right. So, so it really matters what you're taking pleasure in. Right. It's not hedonism. So it's not hedonism if you're seeking pleasure in the truth. Um, but that doesn't mean that the pleasure isn't a significant motivator for you. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't... I. Maybe but the pleasure, I mean, what are your questions coming I'll probably do better at answering it. But the way that I always understand this is because everyone's constantly saying of Aristotelianism, oh, but it's all hedonism. And I'm just like, or it's egoistic, right? Because right. right. you want your own happiness and it turns out like all these goods like bring you pleasure and yeah. it's all about training your pleasures. And I'm just like, okay, um, just because you mentioned pleasure doesn't make you a hedonist, what you're going after is what's really good. And of right. course, if you have the right dispositions, um, that is to say, if you're a good person, then what's really good for you is, is pleasing to you. Right. right? So, so right. It's, a, it's a mark actually of lacking virtue that what's really good for you kind of sucks. Right. <laughs> um, and, you might, and you might still go for it, 
right? You might be like merely, um, mm-hmm. you know, continent or whatever. For Augustine, he he does take this this kind of pleasure, you know, in the intellectual life. It's kind of connatural to him, right. in a sense in which it was very connatural to me. But it wasn't the pleasure, right? <laughs> that I'm that I'm after. It's this like crazy desire, you know, to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. And then when you feel like you've figured something out, or you feel like at least you've made like some kind of progress, mm-hmm. like it's it's totally ecstatic, you right. know. And then of course you retain this in your memory, so that when you're just a befuddled mess, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I can't, like, what, you know, like every philosopher has many moments where they're like what the hell am I doing like I don't know what's going on I don't know why I'm even thinking about Leibniz or at the especially at the beginning of a project you're like I I thought I could I thought I could write why did I but I see can I can I throw a wrench in the works for a second here it's connected to my book but it's something I think is really interesting because I think what you just said about pleasure need to be trained onto the right objects is, is, you know, that's just straight up Aristotelianism, you know, it's gotta be right. Um, but I've, you know, I've always been puzzled as to what really happens to that in the fullness of Christianity, where, um, we worship a crucified God, uh, and where, um, the suffering of the cross is central, um, to our happiness. Um, and I, I, I wonder, I mean, this is something I feel like I have not yet perfected as a writer or a thinker. Um, I can move back and forth between, uh, Catholic spirituality and Greek philosophy, and sometimes they overlap, but a moment like this is one where I feel somewhat paralyzed. I don't actually understand. It's, it's no longer true. I don't think when you're undertaking a crucifixion of a kind that we're all meant to undertake. Oh, that, you mean like carrying my cross and stuff like that? You are, it, it's, there, there may be joy in it. You know, I'm, I, just wrote a paper on this. I just wrote a paper on this. Oh, really? Oh, fabulous. Oh my God, so you can explain to me. Yeah. The, jo- the joy of the cross is not this, it doesn't, that doesn't feel to me the same kind of thing as. It's not. So what I end up saying. The pleasure in the good, you know, pleasure in a healthy meal. It doesn't feel like the right kind of thing. Um, no, well, it's totally different. I mean, so basically the line that I take is that suffering is a part of human flourishing. You think that human flourishing is just, it's like being in the pleasure machine, except you, except it's real, you know? Right. No, that will never, ever be a human life. Ever. And so um, I draw a lot on like Alistair McIntyre and just the fact that human nature, I mean, for Christians, we would say human nature has fallen, but I mean, just in a very general way where we don't have to tie truth to revelation, like, look, we're just vulnerable interdependent things. Um, And so of course we're going to suffer and we do suffer. You don't, you certainly don't have to seek suffering and you, and you shouldn't explicitly seek suffering for the sake of suffering. Um, You don't have to, it's going to find you all the time. So obviously it has to be part of our understanding of what it is for a thing like that to flourish. We have to have a conception of suffering well. And, um, and for the Christian, that's going to take a, a very certain um, 
that's going to have a certain um, conceptual framework where you unite your suffering to that of Christ on the cross or Mary. And like, we, we have a whole way of thinking about suffering that is centered in the crucifixion and the atonement, which ultimately does point to our happiness, our salvation. And we also have this idea of purgatory is like suffering is, has this positive effect in your soul if you let it. You have to learn how to suffer well. But see, I, I feel a bit like now, now I feel like I'm interviewing you, which is bad. That's not fine. You can no. turn, turn the tables back on me. And have you right. um, I'm the one that wrote the book. I'm on the chopping block. But the, I feel like there's, t- there's different kinds of suffering. So there's a kind of suffering, which is the kind of suffering that I underwent when over a period of years, I gave up my, you know, elite academic life, such as it was, you know, um, there's the suffering of, um, losing things that are not really good for you, but that you're very attached to, mm-hmm. I think is very easy to explain. But the the real joy of the, the, the um, there are kinds of suffering which I think a Christian values as uniting with Christ. And there's, there's a joy that's connected to it. And I feel, I feel like that must be something like pure mysticism. So I feel like that must be a point where using philosophy to understand this stuff is going to break down. Oh, I totally agree. So I I, I, um, I just want to figure out where that point is because I I always like, as, as I try to do in the book, right. I, I always like to find the human things, the common things. I think you do too. This is why we like Tom Aquinas, right. Um, find the human things, find the common things, find the natural things, uh, which are things that are widely shared and and you skirt the mystical to sort of isolate it. Um, and and keep it as what it is, but I think yeah, there is I mean, when you hit it, and I think it has to. I think it has to be somewhere with suffering and happiness. Somewhere in the middle of that is something which can't be can't be naturalized. Look, um, I mean, everything that's worth really thinking about is a mystery in the specific sense that yeah. it's inexhaustible. Like yeah. no matter how much you write about it or think about it, and how many true things that you say about it as a finite human intellect, you're only going to like scratch it, <laughs> you know, like you, like it's just inexhaustible stuff. And I think happiness is like that. Right. I think evil is like that. I think suffering is like that. An example, actually, I don't, it comes to mind. And it, it, I think this might be an example. I'll have to think about it more to, to figure out what there is, a, whether there is a human explanation, a natural explanation. But when I, um, when I was at Madonna house, which is a the Catholic religious community I lived with for some time, which is in talk, I talk about a bit in the book. Um, they used to talk about a painter who was very, very talented, who had been a part of the community and had died just a few years earlier. And one of the things apparently she said, she died of cancer, very young, a tragic story, terrible, painful death. And apparently just before she died, she either said or wrote something like the following, you know, I just wish you know, that I could paint for you the things I've seen these past days and weeks, mm-hmm. dying of cancer. Now, w- what is it that she's seeing? Um, this has got to be like the, you know, the, this, this is, it's, it's dying of cancer. <laughs> what, did, what, what did Aquinas see that made him unable to write anything right. ever again? Oh, no, I know, but, it, but that, that might not have been a suffering. He might've, he might have seen some glorious, splendid, splendid, beautiful. Why couldn't, why couldn't someone who's suffering see something glorious and splendid? 
I think part, part of what I thought I might have been going on, and of course I wasn't there and I didn't know her, um, but I thought there was something in the suffering itself. Like it wasn't just like the suffering was, was uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's uh, someday I'll understand, I suppose. Uh, I mean, Flannery O'Connor has this really great quote that says something to the effect of, we need to understand that evil isn't a problem to be solved but a mystery to be endured. And I think, I think that's absolutely true. That doesn't mean that we can't, as philosophers, say important and true and necessary things about evil, right? That it's a privation, that it, like, I mean, we can make a lot of progress conceptually, and that progress is very important. Um, I mean, I think philosophy is very important, but profoundly limited. I take the handmaiden view. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think Dallas, they have a they have a soccer game apparently between the philosophy and the theology department. So it's the who's who's handmaiden uh, contest. So. Yeah, yeah, well, I love it. So, um, so I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But at any rate, philosoph at the level of nature and philosophy, mm-hmm. I did try to make some progress on this question of suffering because it is. Um, I mean, in my own life, one of the things that drew me to philosophy was that I really needed to make sense of my own suffering and I couldn't, you know, and I realized like I I literally wasn't going to make it (laughs) unless, unless I could. I want to talk about your critique of university education. Okay. There's a critique of secular universities where you're like, look, um, we can't have these kinds of echo chambers or intellectual silos, and but we also can't have this kind of like technocratic viewpoint diversity view right. as right. like the supposed antidote. I think you 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 call it the the chocolate box of viewpoints. <laughs> I do actually think that you know aspirations have to come first. Like you have to know kind of what the goal is before. Yeah. What's the vision? What practically you you do on the ground just really depends on what your circumstances are. So I don't, you know, and and of course, as we as we both know, um, you know, higher education may really be facing a kind of apocalypse right now, and we don't know. Maybe it'll pull through. Maybe maybe it'll maybe it'll be better than it looks. Um, but I so think I it's going to be pretty bad. Time in a certain way to be talking about um, uh, how to fix it, <laughs> because you know, it, it's like, well, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you fix this dying patient? Um, well, you got to, it's got to survive first. So I actually don't, the brunt of my, at the end of the book, there, there are two basic criticisms of higher education I make in the book. One is the one we've already talked about where I think de-emphasizing teaching, um, has really hurt the university. It's hurt the quality of the writing and the research people do. And it's, of course, hurt the, the quality of the training that the students do. Um, I sometimes fantasize about act, asking prominent academics whether they think they're passing on to their students an education of the kind they received themselves. Because I'm pretty confident the answer is going to be no. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not passing on to our students, by and large, the education that we received ourselves. We were giving them something much, much worse, something much more watered down, um, so that I think is a kind of a, a basic issue. The thing that you're asking about, I think, is also really important. That is, we, and it has to do with the way we think about uh, humanistic learning. We're, we're very focused on opinions 
so that's part of our results-driven attitude to learning. It's like, how can I get kids to get the right opinions? And you find that across the spectrum. So you find, <clears throat> um, I'm sure you have some in South Carolina, you have academics who come from other parts of the country to the South to try to teach the Southern youngsters good values, which they haven't have learned, they haven't learned growing up. You have also the reverse. You have, oh, we've got to have, you know, we need ideological conservative universities so that all the young people know that free markets are the best, you know. Mm -hmm. so, and then you get the viewpoint diversity people that you talk about where it's like, oh, no, we want some of everything. We want some free marketeers and we want some, you know, uh, social justice people and we want some Christians and some of this and some of that. And I think if you if you take on the view of intellectual life that I try to describe in the book as something which is motivated by um, the virtue of seriousness, that is the drive to know, to understand, to serve, to love, to dedicate yourself to um, whatever the highest or the deepest or the best thing is. You're talking about something that goes into the depths. You're not talking about opinions. Um, if my students, I hope they leave their opinions at the door of the classroom, and I think they usually do. Um, we're not interested in opinions. We want to figure something out. Um, we want to go somewhere we haven't been before. And uh, we don't know what's at the other end of it. Um, it could be an opinion we've already had or we've already heard of before, or it could be something new. And part of the splendor of the human intellect is its capacity to come up with something new and not just mold whatever it already has into some preformed mold. So, so bad, it's bad as intellectual work and it's bad education. Um, and it's, there's in a certain way, nothing good about having everything focused on opinions. So that I think is good. I don't, uh, you know, I'm in a weird position and because I teach at a very unusual institution, I teach at a secular great book school of which there are very few left. Um, the Great Books Movement began on, in the secular world. It began in, in the labor movement in England and the US. And then it uh, is now practiced mostly in Christian schools or in Catholic schools. But yeah, I wasn't by conservative it. Christians, I would by say that. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. So, um, so, but I go to a secular program. We, we, we do, we read the Bible and we read Augustine and Aquinas. Um, but you wouldn't say theology was at the center of what we do. What the center of what we do is some kind of much more loose seri secular seriousness, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. where you, you know, you want to figure things out. You want to know more than you know now. You want to get to the deepest place that you personally can get with the questions that human beings have always asked about human life, about human community, about uh nature and the nature of the universe about mathematics you want to get to the depths mm -hmm. um, and that's something human and it's something common so i you know i don't want to say um i mean i kind of want to say i suppose every school should be like st john's we should have ten thousand st john's but that's something it's in not going that well not only, it's not just that it's not going to happen it's something it's something doesn't feel right about that mm -hmm. um so I think that probably what needs to happen is that um, people who take on board this way of thinking about the intellect that has to do with 
a serious plunge into the depths about what it is to be a human being and um, really uh, seeing where the heart and the mind can go um, in um, in learning. <laughs> I don't know. Then, then we'll figure out the, the, the institutions such as they are will either adjust or develop as however they adjust and develop. And that might look wildly different in different places. Um, and I think that would be good. Um, I don't think there's one way of being serious. Um, but I do think that um, our universities are, are not worth much and, and everyone really knows it. Um, uh, so we have to really try to figure out what, how to recover um, what the kind of things they're meant to be. And, and I don't know, again, what that looks like in every place. Um, and there's, there's a huge variety of purposes to a modern university. There's agricultural schools for improving uh, uh, food production, and there's uh, hotel management schools, and there's medical schools and law schools. And it's this vast realm of stuff that I'm in no position to, to judge or to pronounce on. Um, but that we do need this core of serious learning in the human things that I think is, uh, has got to happen. Um, and, and I, it, you know, that's what I hope and pray does happen. Right. Well, I'm right there with you. You're preaching to the choir. I know. I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> Zena, yeah. it's always so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for coming back. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and is edited by the wonderfully talented William Dethridge, a politics and theology student at CUA. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. We have also recently joined the Lyceum community, and you can find us there under the curated discovery page titled Philosophical Thinking. If you enjoy this podcast, then you definitely need to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and be sure to let your friends know to check us out. Our next episode will feature Professor Troy Jollimore, who will join me to discuss Albert Camus' The Plague. Until then, stay home, stay safe, and keep reading. Mm-hmm.